Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back to week seven and episode seven of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. My name is Michael Cerulli. I'm the president of the College Democrats of Connecticut. With the Connecticut Democratic Party, my name is David Costa. And this week, Dave and I had two great interviews again. I interviewed Congressman John Larson. And I spoke with Pat Wilson Phineas, the representative for the 53rd District in Tolland, Ashford, and Willington. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that aside from being a great candidate, Pat Wilson Phineas's campaign is managed by a fellow college Democrat, uh, my friend Charles. And uh, I'm hoping that they are able to bring it home in November. Michael, you're trying to say that the college Democrats of Connecticut always work for the best candidates? I don't know. I think we've got another campaign manager on Jeff Curry's campaign. Uh, there might be a couple more out there. So I think I think that might be a trend. Yeah. You heard the incredible news about Jeff, didn't you? I did. Congratulations to him. And we were all so overjoyed to to hear that. Yeah. For those who don't know, uh, Representative Jeff Curry um, found out recently that uh, his kidneys were failing and he he launched a campaign uh, to get Jeff a kidney. And with a lot of uh, publicity, it turns out that a very good friend of his was uh, a match. And Jeff will be um, getting a kidney donation shortly. And that's just wonderful news for for him. And it's really good news for us. We love Jeff. Yes, we do. And it was a great piece of news. And otherwise, uh, kind of depressing week after the debate. Uh, we talk about that a bit with Congressman Larson. We mostly talk with him about social security and the social safety nets that he is fighting to defend in Congress. So that interview with Congressman John Larson coming up next on Connecticut's. <laughs> Congressman John Larson, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Michael. How have you been lately? Well, you know, all things considered, uh, given the pandemic that we're dealing with and the back and forth and the frustration down here with the uh, Senate's uh, inability to come to the table and uh, on behalf of the American people, uh, uh, I'm doing fine. I'm uh, optimistic about the election and certainly optimistic about uh, uh, Biden's electability as well. Me too. Me too. And I share your frustration, although probably not as, as deeply as you are down, down in the thick of things. Um, I wonder, um, we've had a couple of reps on the show. Um, and we've never really talked about how are you guys conducting business during COVID-19? How has it changed um, from what like a regular session would have been? Well, uh, first of all, just uh, uh, the way that your access to the floor has uh, changed dramatically. And that's usually where a lot of the back and forth and networking goes on, et cetera. So having voting in waves and uh, having to uh, make sure that you're uh, practicing not only social distancing, but wearing a mask, but also adhering to wiping down and cleaning after every vote and the amount of time that that takes um, has certainly changed the dynamic. I'm pretty much a people person and uh, have relied all my life on networking and communicating with people eyeball to eyeball. It's a little different when you're behind a mask and six feet away, but uh, so it has placed a constraint, but it's one that we need to follow. And uh, primarily because all the science and the evidence is telling us that this is a way that, uh, you know, without a specific uh, remedy to, uh, to date, this is the best way to control it. And Congress ought to set the example and lead the way when it comes to uh, uh, demonstrating to the American people that this can be controlled. And our hearts go out to, of course, Johanna Hayes, who certainly, uh, certainly. has tested positive and is uh, currently 
I think in her second week of her, her quarantine, but her attitude and spirit are great. And she's been a, an outstanding member of the delegation, but there too, uh, normally we would get together and meet on a regular basis. Uh, so now we're meeting and talking over the phone more than we uh, normally would. But, but from my perspective, there's no substitute is that for that eyeball to eyeball uh, conversation, even if you are behind a, a mask. But um, everybody's coping well. Our thoughts and concerns are with uh, Johanna, but uh, her spirit and, and talking to her is just uh, resilient. And uh, I think she's going to come out of this stronger than before. Certainly, yeah. and she's she's really tough, and she's been posting some great uh, some great updates on social media, which I know everyone's appreciated. So, Johanna, uh, we hope you are all we hope you're feeling better soon, and, and we wish you the best. Um, you talked a bit about there about the sort of relationship between the congressional delegation. How strong is that relationship? How often are you guys talking to one another and sort of strategizing? And certainly now that we're we're in this crisis and leading oh, up to an election, I would say daily, and probably the most important thing. And I don't know how in tune, and not that people would be, the probably the most significant election and most important race for the state of Connecticut is Rosa DeLauro becoming chair of the Appropriations Committee. Right, right. Uh, that is, you know, one of the top two uh, power positions within the United States Congress, House or Senate. And the other position, Ways and Means, is held by Rich Neal, a New Englander as well, uh, from Springfield. And uh, we all fly out of the same airport. I'm in contact with uh, Rosa almost uh, daily, as well as Joe Courtney and I. Uh, and uh, Johanna and Jim Himes, we're, we're blessed. We have a very strong delegation. Uh, it's one that's a blend of, uh, of people that are freshmen in Johanna's case and in Rose's case, the senior member uh, of, the, of the delegation. So we bring a broad array of experience and then serve on committees that are vitally important to the state of uh, uh, Connecticut as, as well. So. Well, we talk weekly for sure, as I said, almost daily with Rosa and and Joe and uh, at least two or three times a week with uh, Jim and Johanna as well. Yeah, for, for those listeners who might not be familiar with how these internal caucus races work, uh, what, how does one become a subcommittee chair or a committee chair, uh, particularly of a very powerful committee like what Rosa is going for? Well, yes. And so uh, the current chair, Nita Lowy, has uh, decided not to run again. And that means the chair will be vacant. And uh, so therefore, there will be a a contest. And uh, Marcy Kaptur, a remarkable woman, and actually the dean of all women in the Congress, is uh, from Ohio, and she's running. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz from Florida is running and she's probably 11th down the line in terms of seniority, but brings a different perspective and uh, is out there. So this becomes a contest as you point out, Michael, within the caucus. And so from within the caucus, you it's like a regular election. You vie for votes from people from all over the country and in uh, just about every state. And uh, then ultimately, there's a vote taking in steering and policy. And if you're not the winner there, you get to take it before the whole caucus. And traditionally it ends up before the whole caucus unless there's unanimity. So we expect that uh, with three candidates that will go before the 
uh, caucus, and uh, I would say that um, Rose is in a commanding lead because of a her experience and seniority, and just who she is as a person. I think generally mm -hmm. recognized mm -hmm. by her colleagues as one of the most diligent and hardworking and knowledgeable people uh, up here on the hill, and works very well with uh, with the members and. You certainly want to be able to work well with an appropriator because, uh, and Rose is right, leading right. the charge of bringing back uh, earmarking and getting things so that they're more local and more at state and district specific. Uh, and that's what members are interested in as, as well. So uh, we like her chances and uh, it's why I said this will be the most important race uh, for the state of Connecticut. Outstanding. Um, and, and you yourself have um, a lot of experience with these caucus elections, serving as vice chair of the caucus, then chair of the caucus, and now uh, chair of the subcommittee on Social Security. Talk a bit about the work of that committee. I know you recently held a hearing about the effects of COVID-19 on Social Security beneficiaries. Um, what's the state of play in terms of Social Security and COVID-19? Well, um, what, what triggered the hearing was the president's comments. He first... Uh, uh, stated that he wanted to defer the taxes uh, altogether, which has been a long-term goal of, of his, but also a number of uh, conservatives as well. They like to, first of all, refer to Social Security as a tax. Let me disabuse any one of that. And it's a very simple procedure. I outlined it in the hearing the other day. Look at your pay stub. It says FICA. Uh, yes, the payroll is used to withdraw money to FICA, but FICA is the Federal Insurance Contribution Act. Whose contribution? Yours. So since you've been working and you're and have been paying into Social Security and Medicare, this is an earned benefit that you're paying for. This isn't an entitlement, as the Republicans like to refer to it. And it isn't a tax. Do you know of a tax where you get a uh, pension benefit, a disability benefit, spousal and dependent coverage and a death benefit from? Of course you don't. And it's because there is no other program like it is the nation's number one economic development program. Why? Because it prevents so many seniors from falling into poverty who otherwise would. And this is not a massive plan uh, on average. The average amount that a person receives for Social Security, Michael, is $16,000. And usually it's $18,000 per male and $14,000 per female. But even more alarming, and why we have a bill to correct this, is that there are many people who've worked all their lives in jobs like being waitresses or being uh, mm -hmm. uh, helping out at a, at a hospital or being a clerk whatever the case may be, uh, you've paid in all your quarters to Social Security, but you actually receive a check uh, that is below the poverty level for the country. So, and there's more than 5 million Americans who that happens to. And unfortunately, they happen to be black males and women, and women of color specifically. So this is as much a civil rights issue in terms of how people are treated accordingly within a federal insurance program. And so our goal is to make sure that the new floor for Social Security becomes 125% of whatever the poverty level is, 
raising all of those people who worked all their lives out of poverty. They're not going to get wealthy, but they'll at least have um, more of a check where they can get by on. And that has been our emphasis. Of course, we've been blocked by the uh, uh, Senate, who has said that they won't uh, uh, take the b bill up. And this hearing, though, was prompted by the president, who not only said he wanted to defer the tax, then he went on and said not once, not twice, but now 14 times that we can calculate that he will terminate the payroll tax. Now, when people hear terminate a tax, they don't get too upset. Mm -hmm. right. If you heard someone's going to terminate your insurance premium that takes away your pension, that might upset you and should. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what this would do. That's exactly when the nonpartisan actuaries came out and said, there, as soon as 2021, there would be no more disability portion of Social Security. And as soon as 2023, there would be no more Social Security program because the fund would be depleted. Now, Trump says he, he, he would replace it with something else. Funny thing, though, they don't say where, but what they would do then is make it an entitlement program, not an earned benefit, something that Roosevelt was adamant about and what is the signature plan of the uh, Democratic Party and has been since uh, 1935. We now go over to Dave Kostick for his interview with Representative Pat Wilson Phineas. We're joined by Pat Wilson Phineas. She is the state representative in the 53rd district, which is Ashford, Willington, and most of Tolland. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely, delighted. We're recording this just after the special session concluded. Uh, the Connecticut State Legislature passed a number of bills, and uh, the one that I think got the most attention was definitely the Take Back Our Grid Act. So uh, if you want give a little overview for people of what was in that and you know, what your constituents experienced following the storm. Well, I, I guess I want to start with what my constituents experienced during the storm, which was an all out nightmare like the rest of Connecticut. We found, um, you know, that I think the storm had perhaps been underplanned for in that the resources just didn't seem to be where they needed to be. I had folks who were out of electricity for, in some cases, upwards of nine days. Um, I think there was a lack of coordination and communication. Now I can say from the, from the outset, I know how hard everyone was working. So I don't mean for this to be a criticism as much as I do a recognition of a need for change. It seemed to me that not only given the terrible response that we had for the storm, but, but just a month before they had been sort of an outrageous, uh, raising of bills so that people's um, you know, bills were sometimes two and sometimes three times higher than they had been. So the combination of dealing with the pandemic, being hit by uh, an increase in, in our bills from Eversource, um, and then ha you know, having to deal with it, the aftermath of the storm was just too much for people. Um, so there were a whole lot of people being unhappy. I think what we discovered was that Eversource seemed a lot more concerned about its shareholders than it did its consumers, which of course are my constituents and our constituents. And so the Take Back Our Grid initiative was really, uh, I think, an effort to right some of those wrongs, to bring, for example, uh, performance-based rate making. Uh, you know, it seems like somehow the rates that we're paying ought to be directly connected to how well folks are doing at Eversource, and that hadn't been the case. Um, fortunately, this bill um, does give 
uh, you know, cure the opportunity to do uh, a more complete form of regulation. And part of that is building in performance-based rate making so that we can actually get a handle on, um, you know, standards that the utilities have to meet, um, metrics for determining progress, um, things of, of that nature, um, so that our storm response can be measured and hopefully will be reproved, you know, improved. Um, it also requires the utilities to provide bill credits for food and medicine um, and reduce charges when a lack of preparation by the utility leads to outages that last for longer than 96 hours. Right. Now, I know that many people in my district would really like to recoup the money they lost in food and medicine um, in the last, in Storm Isaias, yeah. but you kind of, you can't legislate back backwards. I think it's called ex post facto. You can't create a law that, that, you know, addresses something that's already happened. So these fixes will be going forward, you know, for the next storm. Uh, well, we can't do much too, about In some adjacent states, I know it was true in New York, and I don't know if it was true in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, the utility companies there did reimburse people. But I don't think it was a legislative requirement. I think it was oh, something that was a that decision. They, by... I think it was something that they um, did. I could be wrong about that, but I do wow. believe it wasn't legislatively required that they go backwards. Um, but it certainly tells you what happens other places, and it's one of the reasons I've concluded that shareholders were getting far more um, attention to their needs than than the consumers that are paying the bills. Right. Um, so a lot of people were extremely upset. I was one of them, you know, yeah. and am quite determined to continue to follow this process to make sure that um, what we've put forth in this bill will be carried out and that there is a full understanding of just how bad things were during the storm. Uh, Pura is still taking information on the storm response and on rates. There's a, a couple of hearings, I believe, being held in October, and I'll certainly be there along with many others who are interested in seeing um, a greater control by us over this, uh, over this utility. Maybe even, um, you know, breaking the utility up into, into smaller, more manageable pieces if we can't get the kind of result, you know, that we're looking, at, that we're looking for through the legislation that we've passed. There were certainly uh, a couple other bills on the agenda in the special session. One had to do with school construction. Yes, uh, that one. Uh, all, and, and honestly, all of these bills passed both chambers with overwhelming support from yes, uh, from senators and reps of both parties. So, uh, talk about the school bill. Well, the school bill um, obviously it was larger than my little piece of it, which was Section Seven. Um, but the school construction bill, as related to Tallinn, helped us with a crumbling foundations problem that we had in our school. You may be aware that last year we had to go through school construction to replace a school which had a crumbling foundation and which was in an unsafe condition. We had to literally move our kids out of the, um, you know, Birch Grove School and into portables, a portable school system, um, while a new school was built with a new foundation. That process is still going on. Wow. In the process of undertaking that construction, we found some bad soil in the new site. That caused an additional unexpected significant expense that we had to go back to the legislature to um, try to recoup a reimbursement rate that would allow us to complete this project. 
And fortunately, in the school construction bill, section seven, we were able to get 100% reimbursement for the um, dollars that we needed to um, spend to fix this newly discovered problem. problem. That means that our kids will, uh, you know, have their new school, their safe new school, and we expect we'll be back in the fall of 2021. So right now the project is on budget and it's on time and we're feeling really good about it. And I can tell you that the people in Tallinn, the entire 53rd district, um, thank everybody who was involved in that from the Department of Administrative Services and Costas Diamandis and the role he played in managing this process to the, um, the education committee, um, representatives uh, McCarty, and uh, the, the chair of, of the committee have come out and done an incredible job, uh, Mr. Sanchez, done an incredible job of relating to the students and, and the teachers and letting people in Tallinn know that the state really does care about what's going on with them and is willing to support us through this terrible time uh, with crumbling foundations generally and in our school, you know, our Birch Grove School in particular. So I'm very grateful that that passed and that our project will continue um, to be completed in a timely fashion. Unfortunately, it's not just limited to schools or municipal buildings. You have uh, oh. residences all over oh, Eastern Connecticut. Sure. And for listeners who may not be in Connecticut or mm-hmm. maybe in parts of Connecticut where this isn't a, a local concern, um, what's going on with Crumbling Foundations generally? Just give some back on I know it's gone back years, this problem, and has been... Uh, a real struggle for many Connecticut residents. Um, so, uh, you know, well, just give a quick overview it, of the problem and some of the solutions that you hope you might um, get to addressing in the next session. Well, the problems, um, the problem is a pyrotite. It's a naturally occurring mineral foundation, but when mixed with the right combinations of water and pressure, it breaks down. And aggregate containing um, excessive amounts of pyrotite were used in the construction of many buildings uh, across Connecticut, but primarily in the Northeast. And my um, district was particularly badly hit. I would say that Tolland, um, Ashford and Wellington are truly in the epicenter of the damage. Um, and so uh, the, this probably happened back in the early eighties, like maybe 1983 and, and moving forward. But we really got involved in making change in uh, 2015 um, when the governor commissioned a study by UConn to, to try to determine, you know, the extent of the problem and how widespread it was. After that, legislation was, was created um, to create a, um, a, a, what we call the CIFSIC or the, um, it's a, a, an organization, a captive insurance company to uh, manage the money that we might get from the state and other places to be able to assist with these foundations. And that has been a a tremendous example of, um, you know, state private coming together to resolve, resolve this issue. So there were a number of things that have been done over to assist um, homeowners. Uh, the, I have to say that the insurance companies kind of wiggled their way out of the problem by changing the language in their policies so that um, a crumbling foundation was defined as an immediate collapse, as opposed to what the pyrotite condition does, which is crumble foundations over a number of years. 
So they effectively bought themselves out of the problem or, or, or maneuvered their way out of the problem, they think, <laughs> maybe back for them on that. Um, however, what that left was homeowners in the lurch. The one folks who had nothing, who had no fault, were the ones that ended up with all of the problems. So the legislature since 2015 and in 2016 has been doing a lot of work um, to try to make that problem easier for homeowners. Um, you know, they're doing things like through the Capital Region Council of Governments, um, creating an in investigation, testing and reimbursement program, uh, providing reassessments in the town so that if your home suddenly went from having a value of 250000 to a value of, say, 75000 because somebody found the pyrotite condition, then adjusting your, uh, you know, the, the taxes that you pay to reflect the actual value of your home rather than its value, you know, before the discovery of pyrotite. So that was particularly important. Uh, permit fees have been waived for uh, claimants so that they can actually get work done. And most importantly, we were able to secure $100 million in funding from the state to be able to address this problem, or I should say begin to address this problem. Um, we also passed legislation for surcharge, to surcharge insurance policies so that everyone in Connecticut who is insured for their home makes a, essentially a $12 a year contribution. Um, to support this problem, which is not just a Northeast problem. I have to say that recently property in Darien was found to have um, a crumbling foundation. So this is more, this is a statewide issue, even though it's been mostly touted as a problem in the Northeast corner. Um, there are, uh, one of the other things that happened in the, uh, I guess about a year ago, was that we were able to develop a low interest loan program because even when someone is able to get money through the, um, the captive insurance company to repair their homes, it didn't cover the consequential damages that might occur during the reconstruction. You know, a, a silly example, but I, if, if a garden or a swimming pool had to be torn up to get to the bad concrete, nobody was providing any money to fix those things after the fact. So those might be dramatic examples but um, there was a need for a low interest loan program. Um, and we were able to get that passed last year, but unfortunately it, the language left out uh, condominiums so that we had to go back this year and extend the same benefits to condominiums in the district, which are pyrotite affected so that they too now are eligible for the uh, low interest loan program. And that's, what we did, you know, that's one of the things we did in the in the special session. You know, listening to uh, state reps and state senators, even even someone like me who thinks they're like, you know, pretty well, well schooled, the level of detail that you guys deal with in figuring out what needs to be done and getting it done for your constituents is just truly impressive. Well, well, I thank you for that. But there, you know, a lot has gone on long before I got here. I'm late to the table, although okay. I, I'm, you know, I was just elected in 2018. So a lot of this work went on in 15 and 16. I credit um, Representative Jeff Curry for a tremendous role in leading this, Jeff Luxembourg, many others. Yes. Um, and the legislators all over the Northeast corner are involved. So there are probably 27 that are involved in this. We formed a bipartisan uh, crumbling foundation caucus, which is, I think, a powerhouse because what it does is it brings together 
legislators from both sides of the aisle, both the Senate and the House. The four of us will move forward in the future to kind of co-chair this bipartisan caucus that is, uh, you know, both, like I said, House and Senate and a Republican and Democrat, because Crumbling Foundation does not have a, you know, an R or a D behind its name. Right. It's people are hit by this and we're working together to solve the problem and working effectively. Working together to solve problems. Pat Wilson Phineas, again, that's the 53rd district. She's running for her first reelection in the, uh, to the State House of Representatives. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're so welcome. Good to talk to you. We now return to the second half of Michael Cerulli's interview with U.S. Representative John Larson. The last time we saw each other, I think, was at an event. It had been an event in, up at UConn here, and you had a, a pin that had JFK on it. Um, exactly. So talk a bit about the sort of lineage of Roosevelt, Kennedy, uh, Robert Well, Kennedy. of course, well, you know, Roosevelt, Truman, but I, I have to say, mm-hmm. and to, to be completely fair, Dwight David Eisenhower and even Ronald Reagan recognized the importance of Social Security. Uh they weren't initially converted, but uh, uh, Eisenhower, because he uh, saw the impact it had, and especially the impact it had on those veterans coming home. Right. Uh, and as the commander in chief recognized it, and there's a very famous quote where he writes his brother who said, you know, you, you've changed. He says, you can't look at this country and understand what's happened to people and not respect and know that this is a insurance plan to safeguard and protect people from the vicissitudes of what can happen in an entrepreneurial uh, capitalistic system like we have, which he fully supported, of course, but also recognized that there needed to be a safety net. There needed to be something there. And of course, uh, the last time Social Security was overhauled in any major way, uh, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Ronald Reagan was the president. So Americans get it. And all the polling data, Michael, will show that uh, whether you're an independent or Republican or a Democrat, once you understand and appreciate what Social Security does for you and is there for you, there's no more defined benefits. Uh, Increasingly, people are learning that, wow, uh, and we don't have to go back to 1935 you only have to go back as far as 2008, 2009 to understand what the Great Recession did. Uh, the 90th percentile of all Americans have not recovered their wealth and assets from the recession of 2008, 2009. During that same time period, Social Security never missed a payment. It mm-hmm. is a defined benefit, and it's been there for people. And it's that guarantee that we not only want to preserve, uh, and and sustain but we want to expand so that especially for millennials not just baby boomers and on average there's ten thousand baby boomers a day who become eligible for social security but also millennials who have found themselves in a god-awful position where they may be the first generation to make less than their parents did they've been weighed down with uh unreasonable college loan debt that they're carrying over there on their backs, as well as difficulty in being homeowners and building up equity because of the cost of of real estate. So social security and a defined guarantee uh, clearly 
is one of the things that millennials rely on the most. We just have to make sure that we've improved and upgraded it so it's able to make sure that it meets their concerns and needs as they march towards uh, retirement as well. Right, right. I really appreciate you being so out front on this issue because I think a lot of folks my age um, might not necessarily understand not only the, the, the things that they are entitled to under the law, but also the benefits of Social Security and, and, and the importance of it. So I appreciate all the work you've been doing um, on behalf of not just, like you said, not just the, the baby boomers, but on millennials and Gen Z as well. Talk a bit about the contrast between uh, Joe Biden. I know, I know there's a lot to talk about, but specifically on areas of Social Security, um, you know, Joe Biden and Trump, there couldn't be a bigger well, contrast it, between them. There couldn't be a bigger uh, gap and divide. And I think that became evident to people who watched the debate. Right, uh, right. <clears throat> well, if you could call it a debate, I mean, it sounded like uh, uh, an eighth grade bully trying to take over and intimidate both the moderator and then interrupt uh, Biden during his remarks and most notably uh, interrupt him in the, in the middle of a, a very emotional and a response about his son, Bo, and his service to the country. You would think, you mentioned I wear the button of, of John Kennedy, and I hope people do think about the importance of how one comports themselves in office. And whether you're the president of the Connecticut College Dems or a, a member of Congress, but certainly as president of the United States, the example that you set for others uh, and especially the youth of the nation, but for all Americans, is how you conduct yourself and comport yourself in public. Uh, and what we saw the other night was um, what amounted to an, an eighth grade egotistical bully uh, trying to make political points and operating outside of the rules. I don't think anyone wins in that case. I appreciated Biden's strength, and especially mm -hmm. when he turned and looked into the camera and spoke directly to the American people. Uh, and hopefully the, the next debates will be uh, better, but I thought uh, just on the basis of substance alone. And, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if people were really swayed one way or the other. And I do believe that that was Trump's goal going into that, to be disruptive, uh, to be disjointed and disconnected uh, and to hope that it turns more people off and people don't go to the polls and vote. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, college Dems and others who understand the importance and significance and know what this means with regard to student loans, know what this means in terms of the economy and a future infrastructure, what it means to uh, the climate and uh, what we're going to have to live with and what it means to our future security whether it's personal or social security, uh, we wanna make sure that we have a government that's working on behalf of the people, not leaving 90% of them uh, behind, but making sure we're bringing everyone along. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think that debate, uh, certainly for the folks that I talked to in the, in the college Dems and in my group that we, we were both, like you said, totally discouraged by the fact that it was so disruptive and, and loud, but also in a way, uh, you know, um, motivated to to get out there and really bring this election home. Um, I'm what glad can folks do? That. 
Yes, yeah. I, I was I was a little nervous that it, it would sort of have the effect that you said of just, you know, turning people off, which I'm sure to some it did. Um, but for most of the young people I talked to, a lot of a lot of folks were texting me that night saying, you know, how can I sign up? How can I volunteer? Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're putting them to work now. So, and especially when the president says, does not come out directly and say that he will abide by the election results. And then uh, further, when he won't uh, denounce white supremacy and white nationalism, uh, that should be disturbing to all Americans of, of every stripe. And I'm sure it is. And I, I know for sure it is with, uh, college Dems. And we just have to, again, get this message out. I think if we're able to do that and people aren't discouraged and don't just say, ah, a pox on both their houses, uh, they have to understand and know that there is a vast difference and wide chasm between uh, the two candidates and Mm -hmm. how they will govern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as we sort of draw to a close here, um, I wanted to ask you a, sort of a unique question. I, I'm in college, you know, as you mentioned, most of my peers are in college, and we a lot of us are political science majors, as you might imagine, and we learn about um, how Congress works, how Congress was intended to work, how the founders set it up. Um, what's one thing that you think might surprise people about how Congress works on a daily basis, something that we might not read in our textbooks or in, here in our lectures? Well, I can tell you for sure, and it's one of my uh, pet peeves, and it has entered into the into the campaign, but I don't think most people are aware of the cloture vote in the Senate and what that means and the ramifications of that. When you have polling data that shows that 70% of Americans don't know there are three branches of government, uh, then you get to understand why the Republicans can be successful. Uh, they can triangulate an issue. How so? Can you imagine that the House of Representatives have passed over 450 bills that have most of them, by 70% of them, bipartisanly adopted that have not been taken up by the United States Senate because they can stand behind a cloture vote that says you need 60 votes to pass something uh, and therefore can block or kill bills. And that was true when Obama was president and it was exactly what the Republican-controlled Senate did to him through uh, for six of his eight years in political uh, office. So I don't think you, you probably uh, have heard about it, but I don't know that people know the impact that has. And when I say triangulate, so right now Congress is in a logjam, probably the most identifiable person in Congress is Nancy Pelosi because she's the Speaker of the House. Mm. And certainly people know who Donald Trump is, the president. People know who McConnell is, but he's less of a role. But what they've been doing is saying nothing's getting done in Congress. Well, why? Because the Senate Republicans aren't taking up any of the bills. But what they're doing is saying it's Congress and they're blaming Nancy Pelosi. And then Trump is saying, that's why I have to do executive orders. I'm a leader, Congress isn't. And if most people don't understand how the system works, which is why I'm glad you're a political science major and as a former history and political science teacher, Mm -hmm. uh, it pains me to no end to know that we've gotten away from teaching history and civics in, you know, middle school, high school at all. 
And uh, it's so vitally important and so much is at stake here because the American people can be drawn in and fooled unless there's an education process that goes on and we're out there uh, making sure they understand what's happening here and not to be discouraged by this or fall into the trap that oftentimes is created on social media where there isn't an awful lot of fact-checking and backgrounding and identifying the source and making sure that what people are saying is straightforward and truthful and documented. Right, right. Well, I think that's a great uh, point to end it on. Uh, you know, advocating for things that are straightforward and truthful. I think that will describe you, Congressman. So I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, John Larson is the Congressman for Connecticut's 1st Congressional District, and he is the Chairman of the Subcommittee on Social Security in the House of Representatives. Uh, And Congressman Larson, thank you so much for all you do, and thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Michael, and uh, good luck to you and the college Dems. We need you. Thank you again to Congressman John Larson for joining us. And you know, Dave, Congressman Larson, he is as comfortable on a podcast as he is at a brewery, as he is in the halls of Congress. And I think everyone that meets him definitely gets that impression. So it's always a pleasure to talk to him. It's always a blast to hear what he has to say. And I think he's probably the only person in the world who can make Social Security sound exciting. Um, So that's that's an added bonus. You know, it is exciting when you realize how much good it does for everybody. And John Larson is out there defending it. Uh, When I think of John Larson, though, I do think of him uh, as well in East Hartford going to Augie and Ray's. He always says that's the hot dog to have. I believe (laughs) there are others around the state who would differ. And one day it is my goal to have each of the five members of Congress debate where the best place is to get a bite to eat. You got your New Haven pizza. You got your Augie and Ray's hot dog. I don't know too much about the others. We have to see. I, I the, one of the times I talked with Congressman Larson was when he did a little incursion into Congressman Himes's district, and it was at Brewport. Um, so I know I know Jim, if he's listening to this, might uh, be a little bit upset that uh, the congressman was going to one of his favorite pizza places uh, in Fairfield County. So uh, thank you again to Congressman Larson. Thank you to Pat Wilson Phineas. Uh, Dave, why don't you tell the listeners how they can get involved? That's right. We've got, what, a month to go now? A little bit less than a month to go. We need your help. ctdems.org slash volunteer will do the job. We've got plenty of ways for you to work from home to help candidates across Connecticut, across the country, as well as the Biden campaign in uh, swing states. So if you would like to help out, please, ctdems.org slash volunteer and let us know how you want to lend a hand. And of course, we'll see you next week for another episode of Connecticut's, the CT Democrats podcast. Mm-hmm.